Uh, Matthew 7, 7 to 14. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or, if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. So far the reading of the word. Uh, how, to use, how to use the Bible conclusion to uh, three weeks concentrating on the word of God. And uh, hopefully this will be practical. Uh, practical enough that uh, it will it will be helpful to you. Um, if you go to the next uh, next slide there. So what what are you going to do when you pick up your Bible uh, to interpret it and apply it to your life? And uh, I've written down five things here. Um, really, there are just uh, those three last those last three steps there on the page: observation, interpretation, and application. Those are the three steps. What is in there? Look at it carefully. Interpret it. What does it mean? Ask questions of the text and get answers to your questions of the text. And finally, application. What does it mean to me? Now, I put down there two previous steps, context and the flow of thought. Uh, That's really observation and interpretation too, but it's outside of your particular passage. So uh, the context for the passage that we're looking at today would be the Gospel of Matthew and uh, how this little passage fits in, the, fits in the Gospel of Matthew. Sometimes that's the hardest to do. When you're just reading one little paragraph in Matthew, if you don't know anything else about Matthew, it's hard to fit it into the context. So normally when you're studying the Bible, you would read the whole book of Matthew and then you would take a paragraph and ask what it means. Okay, that's the only way you're going to fit it in the context of the whole book. If you go to the next slide there. So, oh, that's small. I heard somebody say, oh my. I'll have to read it off of my page. So here's the context of Matthew. The full book. And I wrote this down. Matthew is a gospel about the good news of Jesus Christ. Did everybody know that? Yeah, okay. That's context, right? So here we've got the story of Jesus. And so somehow our little passage fits in the entire story of Jesus. Well, then I ask, well, what is, what is the main theme of Matthew? What is, what is, what is Matthew telling us about Jesus? And one of the most important things Matthew tells us about Jesus, and he emphasizes it over and over again, is Jesus is the king. He's the king. And so in Matthew chapter 1, he tells us Jesus' genealogy, and he takes it back to David. King David. Jesus is in his line. 
And then when it tells you about where he is born, where is, where is Jesus born? Okay, Bethlehem, thank you. Come on, this is the Christmas season. These are not supposed to be hard questions. <laughs> okay, born, born, born in Bethlehem. And uh, Matthew lets you know why born in Bethlehem. That's the city of David. And who comes to worship Jesus right away in the Gospel of Matthew? The three kings come. Shepherds don't see Jesus in Matthew. It's three kings. And the question they ask is, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? Okay, Matthew's including that story. He wants you to see Jesus as the king. So right from the very beginning, he is leading you that way with all of the things that he includes in his passage. And then in Jesus returns after the resurrection, Jesus comes to his disciples and he tells them, all authority has been given to me. I'm the king. All authority has been given to me, so go and make disciples. So that's the Gospel of Matthew, big picture. So somehow everything in Matthew fits into that big picture. Jesus is the king, he's got all authority, and he's telling us what to do. That's Matthew. Smaller context. The, three, the third line there, if you can't read it, says... Matthew 5 through 7 is a sermon preached by Jesus called Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so we're taking part of this passage and we're going to look at this passage in detail, but it's part of a sermon. So it's a, it's a part of a bigger material, a bigger sermon, and this is one part of that sermon. Jesus often preached about the kingdom of God. And then I also said this, final final context is Matthew 5 through 7 is seen as a key sermon of Jesus ethical teachings. Okay? So this is this is key when it comes to Jesus teaching on morality, Matthew 5 through 7. So that's the context of our paragraph. Okay, go to the next slide please, Lynn. Flow of thought. Okay? So if you take out your uh, bulletin or take out your Bible, I want you to see flow of thought. And what I would do for what I do to get the flow of the thought is I try to write down one little one little idea for each line. So for instance, Matthew 7 says, "Ask and it will be given to you; seek and you will find; knock and the door will be opened to you." I would say Jesus tells us to pray and we'll get answers. Something like that. Simple. And then verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus promises answers to the prayer. One little line. And then I go to verse 9. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And there I would just write down, we have a promise of a heavenly Father giving us good gifts. Flow of thought, 
So we've got uh, a few verses here about prayer and Jesus giving us, telling us the prayers will be answered and giving us an encouragement, telling us we've got a heavenly Father who's good and wants to give us good things. Then that's an encouragement to prayer. And then I go to the next verse. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Notice there's a non sequitur in the thought. How does Jesus go from saying, pray and you will be answered to do good to others? Do to others as you would have them do unto you. Do you notice the connection between the thought? If you think about it, there's a tremendously powerful application. Often, the reason why we won't put Jesus' words into practice, the idea that I do good to others as I would have them do to you, is we think, I need to look after myself. Why would I do good for all of them? Nobody's doing good for me. <laughs> I need to look after me. And Jesus is saying, no, you do to others what you want them to do to you. Well, why do I do that? Because I've got a heavenly Father who gives me what I ask Him. I don't need you to help me. You see that? I don't need somebody else to be looking after me because I've got a heavenly Father. I pray to Him and He takes care to me. And then Jesus says, okay, now you do good to others as you would have them do unto you. That's powerful. There's a flow of thought there. Uh, we'll come back to flow of thought on that section. Finally, notice the verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now we're just thinking a flow of thought here. What is the narrow gate? What is the narrow gate? Just think of, don't tell me. What is the narrow gate? In the flow of thought, the narrow gate is doing to others what I would have them do unto me. That's the narrow gate. Just from the context. Why is it narrow? Nobody lives that way. I do to others what I think they deserve. Right? Or I do, I, do, I do to others what they've done to me. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that, that's the broad way. The narrow gate is, specifically right in the flow of thought, the narrow gate is living my life by the words of Jesus when he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. That's the narrow gate. Uh, now we'll come back to what the narrow gate actually is. We're just we're just looking at the we're just trying to grasp the flow of thought. How do, how does each section connect to the next? You should be doing this every time you pick up your Bible. <laughs> okay. If you go to the next slide. 
Okay, observation and interpretation. So now we're going to go back to that first section, ask, seek, and knock. Um, and I ask this question, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. And I ask the question, why does he have three things? Why, why asking, seeking, and knocking? And then I ask the question, what's he talking about? Is he really talking about seeking? Uh, a week ago, Cliff, Cliff was mowing the lawn, maybe two weeks ago. Cliff was mowing the front lawn, and he lost his wallet. And so Cliff phoned me, and he goes, Pastor, did you see my wallet? And I did not say to him, listen, listen, Cliff, do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, seek and you will find. What are you calling me for? <laughs> By the way, he found his wallet. He ran over the wallet with the lawnmower. And he chopped everything up into it into little bits. So no one stole anything out of Cliff's wallet. It was chopped up. Have you replaced everything in the wallet, Cliff? Working at it. Thankfully, he did not chew up any money. Jesus is not really telling us, hey, here's, 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 what, here's, here's advice on how to find something. <laughs> go and go and seek it, and you will find it. Right? He's not giving us advice on what happens when we come up to a door and we don't know what's on the other side. Well, you should knock on the door. Right? So, so these, are, these are figures of speech. And they're figures of speech meant to encourage us to pray. And he says it three ways. I think he says it three ways. This is part of the interpretation. I think he says it three ways so we'll remember it. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. That sticks in your mind. So that when you say to somebody, seek and you will find, you know, hey, yeah, I know. I've heard that before. Jesus said that. It's got a nice rhythm to it, and, it, and, it, and it, it kind of makes sense. But it's not really talking about seeking, and it's not really talking about knocking. It's talking about praying. I also observed this. What is Jesus trying to get us to do? He's trying to get me to pray. And he's giving me encouragement to pray by saying, listen, you get answers. If you ask God, He gives you. And if you seek from God, you find it from God. And if you knock at God's door, He opens the door. Tremendous encouragement to pray. And in fact, uh, all, all of this section I, I would classify as, in, as encouragement to pray. In verse 8, He strengthens, strengthens it by saying, Everyone who asks receives. And everyone who seeks finds. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Strengthens those promises. Um, then I wrote down I have an interpretation problem. And I thought about this, and I'm sure you think about it too. Uh, just a second. Do I get everything that I ask for in prayer?
Well, what limitations are there in the passage? That's what I ask myself. I guess, okay, Jesus had given me these tremendous promises. Is there anything here in this context, right here in this passage, that's going to limit these prayers? Uh, there is some limitation in the passage. Um, you will notice, okay, if you've got your Bible open, notice with me uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. Same sermon, Jesus teaching about prayer. He says this, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's a limitation on prayer right there. So if you say, Jesus, Father, forgive me for that sin. He might not forgive you. What? He might not forgive me. <laughs> That's a limitation on prayer. Right in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There's a limitation on prayer. Limitation on forgiveness. Or I like what he says in 6.33. It says this, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So can I pray to God to give me all these things, but I will not seek His righteousness, and He's still going to give them all to me? There's a limitation. Or right in the very passage we're studying, it says, How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? God gives us the things that are good for us. So don't go out of here praying for that Rolex that John found in the Maybe God wants you to have a Timex. I don't do they even make Timex anymore? Since 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 I since I got a since I got a cell phone, I use that as my clock. I never never have a watch. So limitations right in the passage. Then I notice that there's a comparison made of earthly fathers to heavenly fathers. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? And of course, we, we only give good stuff to our children. I don't think anybody puts uh, lumps of coal in stockings anymore. However, in the old days, that was a wonderful gift, right? If you're freezing, a lump of coal is great. Right? That's, that's wonderful. Get a lump of coal on Christmas Day. Hey, woo, we're going to be warm for one day. We want to give our kids good things. And Jesus goes, well, you who are, you are evil people compared to God, and you know how to good give, give good gifts, what do you think God's going to give when you ask Him? Of course He's going to give you good stuff. Because he's the best. He's the best father. If you go to the next slide. 
observation and interpretation of Matthew 7.12. Notice it says, Therefore, everything, whatever you may wish that people do for you, so also do for them. This is the law and the prophets. And I observed, first of all, this is a summary statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everything, the therefore. So Jesus has given his sermon. He's now coming to the end of his sermon. Therefore, whatever you wish people do for you, so also do for them. So it's a, it, this is a summary statement of Jesus' teaching. I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking, remember, do you remember Donald Trump's favorite verse from the Old Testament? No, that was the New Testament. Do you remember, remember Donald Trump's favorite verse from the Old Testament? He said his favorite verse, an eye for an eye. That's what he claimed was his favorite verse. <laughs> Ridiculous, I know. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He claims that's his favorite verse. Okay, now, that's a little different than Jesus' favorite verse. <laughs> So Jesus says, here is the entire Old Testament. This is the law and the prophets. What is the law and the prophets? Do to others what you would have them do to you. Not do to others what they've done to you, an eye for an eye. Do to others what you would have them do to you. This is the entire Old Testament. Wow, that's, that's an incredible... We're just, we're just reading what's here, Right? This is observation, interpretation. Jesus has crystallized it all down to this one statement. So it's a summary for Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And here you have a summary teaching of the Old Testament. Uh, if you go to the next slide. So I came up, I noticed that this is a command, and uh, my, own, my own translation of it is this. Okay, we're still on verse 12. This is my translation. In the Greek, it's read this way. Therefore, everything, whatever you may wish that people do for you. That's how he starts. Everything, whatever you wish people would do for you so also do for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Notice he doesn't say this is the summary of the law and the prophets. He said this is the law and the prophets. So it's a command. Jesus is telling, telling us to do something. So I've got a number of reasons for why we should do good to others and treat people well. That's, Jesus, that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to treat people well. So here are all the reasons. First of all, you want people to treat you well and do good to you. That's why you should do it for others. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Right? So you've got to think about, well, how do I want people to treat me? I want them to treat me well. I want them to give me opportunities, and I want them to treat me with respect. That's what you do for others. That's what you want. You give it. 
Secondly, why should I do this? Jesus commands me to. Just do it. Third reason, why do I do this? God provides for me as I pray, so I can do good to others. Four, doing good to others fulfills Jesus' ethical teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, here we had a summary of all of Jesus' ethical teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, it's Jesus' own conclusion of his sermon. So I must do good to others. And finally, doing good to others as I want them to do to me fulfills all the Old Testament ethical instructions and laws. Okay, next slide. Observation interpretation of Matthew seven thirteen through fourteen. First question I ask What is the narrow gate? We've already talked about it. In the immediate context, the narrow gate is treating others the way I want them to treat me. That's the immediate context. It's the verse right before it. In the context of this sermon, the narrow gate is actually all the teachings of Jesus. I want to enter through the narrow gate. What's the narrow gate? The Sermon on the Mount is the narrow gate. Jesus' ethical instructions. And in the context of the whole Bible, the narrow gate is believing in Jesus Christ. Let me back it out another way. Believing in Jesus Christ. If I believe in Jesus, then I'm going to do what he tells me to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Does that make sense to you? I hope so. If I believe in Jesus, then shouldn't I accept what he says as truth and commands for my life? If I believe in Jesus, then yes, when Jesus says something, I should go, well, first of all, that's true. And secondly, I should do it if I believe in Jesus. So believing in Jesus is the narrow gate. Doing what he tells us to do, that is also the narrow gate. And finally, the summary of what Jesus tells us to do is doing to others what I would have them do to me. The narrow gate. Next slide. Application. So I can't apply all of it today. So I'm just going to show you just one verse. Doing to others what I would have them do to me. How am I going to apply that to my life? The first thing I ask is, do I have to change my thinking or my attitudes? Do I have to change my thinking and my attitudes? And, or do I need a thinking correction or an attitudinal correction? And the answer is you all need an attitudinal correction. <laughs> of course we do. Because we're all the same. And at the end of the day, when we get up in the morning, our first impulse is to take care of me. And so I go down and I get myself a coffee. And I fix me a breakfast because I'm hungry. But the problem is, as we go through the rest of our day the same way. 
What do I want? What do I need? What do I want to do? It's all about me. And Jesus says, no, we need to do to others what I would have them do to me. I have to change my thinking and my attitudes. Of course I do. Do I have to change my habits or practices? We probably do. So that's where you have to look at your life and have to start saying, okay, I notice that everything in my life is all about taking care of me. So I've got to do some things to help take care of others and put others first. So then I start to ask smaller questions. How am I going to do this in my family? If you're a husband, you're going to ask the question, what should I be doing for my wife? I know what I want her to do for me. So now I have an idea of what I should be doing for her. How will I do this in my family? What am I going to do with my children? My parents? How will, how, how will I practice this at work? How can I do this with my neighbor? How will I do this at church? Do I have to find someone that needs me to put it into practice? I need to find examples to help me do this. Notice the last one. I need to find examples to help me do this. So now we've got an idea in our mind, and I want to apply it to my life. So now I'm going to start looking at other people to see who's doing that and how can I imitate them. Or, or, or what's an example that will help me solidify this way of thinking in my own mind. I happen to find one this week for you, so let me read it. This might take me a while. This is on my Kindle. Oh, it works. This is a story from World War II uh, from a book called Shantung Compound. And this is a Japanese uh, war camp. And uh, what they did was they put all of the Europeans in northern China in one camp. And so all the missionaries and all the business people, uh, engineers, uh, people that were fleeing from the law, and uh, people who are retiring to make their money go further, uh, all of them in northern China were all put in one internment camp run by the Japanese. The book then is written by a man by the name of Gilkey, and Gilkey is an unbeliever. And as they're thrown into the prison camp, Gilkey thinks religion's a waste of time. We don't need it. We don't need to believe in God. We don't need any of that kind of help. Because men and women are basically good. And we'll find that the goodness will rise to the top. That's what he thought. And, uh, by the way, that, that is what the world thinks. That's the thinking of the world, that people are basically good, and that if you give them the right environment or the right education, 
you will find that they are good. And uh, one of the things Gilkey was in charge of, he was just a young man, but they put him in charge of housing. And so it was his job in the internment camp to solve all of the housing problems. And what they did was they put so many bachelor men in a small room, 9 by 14, would usually have about 10 bachelor men in a room, but 9 by 14. Just enough for each of you to lie down. Maybe have a little bit of space to put some clothing. Well, they noticed that there was one room, 9 by 14, that had 11 men in it. And the one across the hallway had nine men in it. It seemed like an obvious solution <laughs> to move one out of the room with 11 into the room with nine. And so Gilkey went to the room with nine. And he said, listen, we need to solve this problem. You've got a little extra space, and they're really crowded across the hallway from you. We want to move one of them into this room so that it will be equal. He thought in his mind, this is fair. Everyone will want to do this. Until he talked to the room with the nine men. They said, why should we be more crowded so that they'll be less crowded? Why should I do that? And he spent a few hours trying to convince them and finally, one man in the room of nine spoke up and he said, if you put one of them in here, we'll throw them out. And if you come back here, we're going to throw you out. By the way, the only way they could solve the problem was they had to go to the Japanese commander of the camp and he made them do it. Here's what Gilkey says about the problem. He said, the, 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 the desire at the root of the matter, it determined not only their emotional reactions, but to my wide-eyed surprise, it seemed even determine the way they approached the issue in their minds. Thus, to try as I did merely to move their minds by rational or moral persuasion was to leave quite unaffected the fundamental dy dynamic force in the situation, namely the fear that if another man came in, each of them would be that much more crowded. I almost laughed aloud when a queer thought struck me. Why should a man wish to be reasonable or moral if he thereby lost precious space? Notice the question. Why should a man wish to be reasonable or moral if he thereby lost precious space? The answer to that question is there's no reason. If there's no God, there's no reason. Do men really value their own moral excellence more than they value their own comfort and security? Of course they don't. Comfort and security comes first. I seem to be staring suddenly into a, into a new abyss of complexity and trouble in human affairs. If men really cared less about being rational and good than they did about their comfort, where did that leave my belief in men's basic goodness? I came home that night confused and shaken. 
And it's interesting, he, he ends up coming to Christ because he sees it's the only answer to why should I be moral? Jesus commands us to do to others as we would have them do to us. So hopefully, if there was a room of nine of us, <laughs> we would say, yeah, give us one. In fact, why don't you give us two? <laughs> so that we can be more crowded and you can be more comfortable. Because we're going to do to you what we want you to do for us. <laughs> not, what we, not what we think you deserve. Um, sad that in that camp, there were a lot of Christians in that camp. And Gilkey was surprised to find that even Christians sometimes were very selfish. We are not to be selfish, right? Let's do to others what we would have them do to us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.